know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are thrilled to welcome back Professor Kathy Kramer to the podcast. Professor Kramer is a political science Badger alum and received her PhD from the University of Michigan. She has researched and written about political behavior and polarization for a very long time and is the author of The Politics of Resentment, Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin and the Rise of Scott Walker, a book which many national journalists and scholars said was helpful in explaining Donald Trump's presidential victory in spite of many polls and a consensus in the media that he wouldn't. Today, we are extremely excited to talk to Professor Kramer about voting in Wisconsin and Wisconsin politics and things that you can do as a listener and as a citizen to be more engaged. Let's jump right in. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for doing this. I just think it's great that you do this podcast. I'm just as happy. I'm just as happy to be here as well. And of course, there's so much to talk about three weeks out from this historic election. I want to start with your lifelong work professionally and personally to help citizens become civically engaged through formal and informal channels. What resources are there right now for students on campus and maybe those living off campus at home, given the COVID-19 situation, to get engaged? Students at UW-Madison are very fortunate to be at a place that just lives and breathes engagement. So there's lots of resources, but I'll name two in particular. With the election around the corner, I encourage everybody to check out vote.wisc.edu. It's a great website that our university is maintaining um, that gives students everything they need to know in order to vote, um, to register, uh, to get their voter ID, to uh, vote absentee or vote early if they want to, uh, and or to know where to go to show up at the polls. And um, depending on when this airs, I just want to point out that tomorrow, well, we're so we're recording this on the 13th, but October 14th, Wednesday, is the last day to register by mail or online. But in Wisconsin, you can register at the polls. So if people see that deadline and it's past the 14th, they shouldn't uh, worry because they can still register at the polls. So vote.wis.edu is a, a, a great resource. But the other resource I'll name is the Morgridge Center for Public Service, which is a center that's open to everybody on campus. It's located on the first floor in the Red Gym. And it's a great resource because you can get involved in the Badger Volunteers Program to volunteer with one of uh, about, I think, 100 uh, organizations in the community these days. You can also learn about community-based learning courses, which enable you to be engaged through your coursework. Um, there's a variety of other ways that the Mortgage Center can get people, help people get engaged. And um, it's just an awesome team of people and uh, the Red Gym in, in particular, just a great place on campus that currently isn't buzzing with activity, but once we are all back together in person, it is. And it's right next to Memorial Union. So I encourage people to check it out. Absolutely. Those are great resources for students looking to make sure that their voices are heard this fall. 
I know you do, or you know, you're the you're one of the chairs of the Badger Vote Coalition here on campus. What does that work look like for you as the chair? Um, you know, making sure that students exercise that most important right. Well, it's a awesome privilege for me because it's a it's a big team of people, about thirty to forty people. Um, from students to staff to faculty to a few community members and the city clerk, Mary Beth Witzel-Bell, and a few staff members from the city clerk's office, all working together to make sure that students have all the information they need in order to vote. So it's very nonpartisan. The people involved are involved because they believe in democracy and believe that especially for younger people for whom this is likely their first presidential election, it's really important that they know what they need in order to vote because there's a lot of uncertainty around it, especially these days, right? Like, how do I register? What kind of voter ID do I need? How do I vote absentee? How do I vote in person? There's just many different things that um, are a little bit mysterious and the more uncertainty there is, likely people are to vote. And we want people to vote early so that they you know, develop the habit and um, I mean, early in their life um, so they develop the habit and can carry it throughout their life. So for me, what it means is working with um, all those different people on the coalition. We have one kind of subcommittee of student interns who are communicating with students primarily through social media, using a lot of humor, trying to get the message across in an engaging way, working with the athletic department, um, and as well as there's a team of people who are communications professionals who are helping develop uh, video content, um, everything from stickers that are going to go on um, um, food products through housing uh, to, so again, social media content, um, to masks, uh, <laughs> to every possible way we can get the word out. And as you know, as you all know, like the the radio communication podcast, just reaching people every way except in person is just so um, valuable these days. And um, it's so it's really just a lot of communication work <laughs> trying to keep people um, both informed, but also I'm a bit of a cheerleader to be honest. It's trying to keep people upbeat and excited about their democracy happy to be engaged in the process, um, which is really important because I think it's just a really challenging time for people, right? And people are feeling isolated and often removed from their political process. And so I just take it as my job to remind people, no, this is your democracy. Now's the time. Take the, take the moment and, and exercise your right to vote. In your, in your role as this, is there something that you see students you know, continually stumbling on in the process of registering to vote and getting their vote in. Like, I guess what I'm asking is, what are you finding is the one of the more one of the most confusing aspects of the process for students, and that you see crops up a lot. One is just the initial figuring out where to go for information. Once people know about vote.wis.edu, then everything they need is there. But if they haven't heard of that website, um, they may go on, you know, the MyUW um, and, and find it through that form, but it, until they find a good source of information, that's one thing that trips people up. Another is um, the voter ID. So in Wisconsin, if you're voting in Wisconsin, 
you do need a valid voter ID when you vote, whether it's um, at the polls or, or if you even are voting earlier by absentee. And if you don't have a valid Wisconsin driver's license, then it's a little bit confusing about, well, what do I do? Um, there's other IDs that will work, but fortunately, UW-Madison students now can go to voterid.wisc.edu and download an, a student ID that is designed to be valid at the polls. And this is kind of a brand new option for people because of the pandemic, the Elections Commission has enabled us to do this. And really it's just a click of a few buttons and people can download the voter ID that they need. I would say another thing that trips people up is um, if they're voting by absentee, they, they should just really read the directions carefully because there are quite a step, few steps you have to go through in terms of having a witness, both of you filling out your address on the envelope. Um, just be sure that you're following all the steps. Our city clerk here in Madison, the city clerk's office is awesome. And they are trying to communicate with people if they receive an absentee ballot and it looks like on the outside that all this information isn't filled out correctly. They will communicate with you or try to and say, hey, you need to come in and fix this. But um, you don't want to, you don't want to leave it to that. You want to do it right the first time and make sure your vote gets counted. So I would say um, those are the main stumbling blocks. Just one more follow-up on the university provided voter ID, just for clarification for listeners, that is taking place of the physical card that used to be printed in the in past times before the pandemic at Union South. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you still, if for whatever reason, you still want that physical ID, you can still get one at the Wiscard office in Union South. Just look up on the website the hours that they're open and, and you'll know that you have to enter through Randall Street and wear a mask and all that. But you can also just download this ID and, and it, it does the same function. Kind of to shift from this topic to a little bit more of your work in teaching and research. So right now, Wisconsin politics and the pandemic are kind of crashing into each other head on. And I just want to read a recent uh, Yahoo News article headline uh, reading, quote, Wisconsin politics is broken and it is worsening the virus, end quote. So mm. we talked a little bit earlier uh, with you in April about partisan politics in Wisconsin in the context of the pandemic and the Supreme Court election. But now, especially as the pandemic has worsened, it seems even more dire. First, um, it might be helpful for our listeners to just hear your own summary of your rural resentment research as part of this question. But then also, do you think that there's been a change at all in either direction as the summer went on and as the virus got worse in Wisconsin? Sure. Okay. No problem. So the work I did um, between 2007 and 2012 primarily, what I did was to invite myself into conversations around the state. And my initial intention was not to study a rural versus urban divide, but I was visiting um, groups of people in a variety of communities, including some smaller towns, rural places. And um, over time, I became really interested in what I was hearing in those smaller communities. And primarily what I was hearing was a surprise to me, even though I've lived most of my life in Wisconsin, um, it was the sentiment of people feeling ignored and disrespected and feeling like they weren't getting the resources that they deserved and that 
um, our urban areas were getting the bulk of the political power and attention and resources and respect. And um, it's, it's a sentiment I call resentment because it was often just kind of a matter of fact, kind of um, slow simmering feeling of, of being ignored. And at times it came out as anger, but um, it just was sort of um, just a, just a, a, a sense that, yeah, no kidding, the cities get all the good stuff and we're out here to fend for ourselves and people in the cities making the decisions don't have any clue what our lives are like. And that became pretty important politically in Wisconsin because it's a sentiment that Scott Walker, um, the former governor tapped into when he ran initially for office and then in the recall election and in his reelection campaign. And I think that Trump tapped into too as well in 2016. So last time we talked in April, you know, the pandemic was still relatively new. Um, what I think what we were talking about is just that the, at the time, the incidence of cases, COVID cases was, was primarily um, located in, in our more urban areas in Wisconsin as, as was the case pretty much across the country. But that has changed over time. And now when you look at the map of where the new cases are, um, it's a lot of the, the um, less densely populated counties are really having a tough time. Um, and, and I think the thing that has happened is how we deal with COVID-19 has become a partisan issue, right? Where on the one hand, you have healthcare professionals um, saying that wearing a mask, yeah, it's not going to save you from getting COVID-19, but what it will do is prevent you, prevent the likelihood of you transmitting it to someone else. And so basically we're being told, you know, wear a mask to save other people. But um, people, um, more conservative leaning groups um, have said, you know, what is this about the government telling us what to do and who we can spend time with and whether our, um, our churches are open or not. And um, feeling like this is an affront to our civil liberties. And so it, it has become uh, a partisan issue where now, you know, um, you can find yourself wearing a mask and, and people will see it as your, um, like it's somehow a partisan act, or you can find yourself not wearing a mask and people assuming that you're a Trump supporter, you know? <laughs> and so um, the state, as in other, other places in the country, have become divided on just this very basic uh, thing of how we respond to the pandemic. And unfortunately, places where you don't see it, it as common to wear a mask are experiencing higher rates of transmission. And that Yahoo headline saying politics in Wisconsin are broken. I mean, I would, I would argue that politics in Wisconsin are in a very tough time but I don't think it's irreparable damage. And what I see as the, the big injury is just our inability to respect one another. And we've, we've felt that over the summer in so many ways. So I've spent, been primarily talking about masks and the partisan divide, but I mean, our racial injustice and our racial tensions in this state, I mean, we have never, it's never been so front and center as it is right now. And so, like I said, I hope that it's not irreparable damage 
it's a it's a pretty tough time to be a Wisconsinite. I, I think un, unfortunately true. Now, now in political science, there's this concept of affective polarization. You know, we, we talked about partisan polar, polarization for many years in terms of where people stood on the issues. But now we understand, I mean, I think increasingly we understand two things about the way people think and act about politics. And one is that our, our sense of ourselves or our social identities are really central to how we function politically. And oftentimes we're supporting candidates or parties, not because of particular issue stances sometimes, but oftentimes it's more along the lines of, are these people like me or are these people for me? Uh, can I see myself um, in that political party or like does that political party represent people like me? Just of that very general sense of identity and then we also know that partisan polarization is often along the lines of like feelings and just how we feel about our party and about the other party. And uh, again, that's, that's sort of much more fundamental than issue stances. And what it means is that if you identify with a party and, and probably even more powerfully than that, if you think that Republicans are people like you and Democrats really aren't, and you get a sense that Republicans generally don't wear masks, then it becomes like, it becomes part of your identity to not wear a mask. Same for Democrats, right? And that kind of thing is really hard to overcome with say information. It's not about information at that level. It's about signaling like I am this kind of person or these kind of people seem like they value the same things that I do. And the problem is go, moving forward, the task ahead of us is not sharing factual information. The task ahead of us is somehow figuring out how do we respect one another in this moment in which we see people of the other partisan color as fundamentally other, right? As like adversaries at a deep level. And it, that it's really hard because I think what it will take is, is, is I think what it will take is a bit of faith and this, the ability to say, okay, the people on the other side may be seeing me as fundamentally evil, but you know what? I'm not gonna counteract evil with evil. I'm gonna counteract evil with love and I'm gonna be as compassionate as I can and as kind as I can and try to understand. That's really tough when you're also sometimes feeling like what I need to do right now is fight because my fundamental way of life or what I value most in this world is under attack. And so at the same time that I believe that what we need is more understanding and listening and compassion, I'm also very mindful that there are people who are sick of not being listened to and who think that really what they need to do um, to preserve just their fundamental well-being is to hunker down and fight. All very good points. And I think that's really elucidating about this kind of both political and societal situation that we're in and just, you know, 
why it's kind of become so nasty at times. Um, uh, but then to kind of step back from maybe some of these um, sociological implications and then talk about elections, what do you think the impact of virus partisanship is going to be on presidential, the presidential election in Wisconsin and larger uh, the presidential election nationally? Well, I think at this point, people are really um, entrenched. And President Trump contracting COVID, I don't think mattered much for the race, for example. And just thing after thing is happening and it doesn't seem to be moving the polls much. I mean, there there's a, seems like there's been a little movement in the last few weeks. And I think what's happening is that the, the five people who have yet not made up their minds, and I'm exaggerating, obviously, but a very small percentage of people who have not made up their minds are now sort of sorting and, and making up their minds. That's, that's my sense. Uh, I, I think generally what the pandemic has done is drive people um, into their camps further. And um, I do think it, it will also have an effect on, I mean, it is having an effect on how people are voting, right? Like people who, it seems like early voting um, from what we can tell is, is being done primarily by democratic leaning folks and um, uh, Republican leaning folks are more skeptical of voting by mail and probably more likely to show up the day of. Um, but I would say uh, the, the demographics in which there's, there's the most um, indecision, say for example, suburban women um, I think that the virus partisanship, again, I mean, it, it depends on how they were leaning before the panic, pandemic happened, but for those who are still undecided, um, it tends to be the case that that demographic will lean more um, in a liberal fashion with respect to healthcare issues. And so you can imagine that that on balance, um, that demographic in particular is gonna lean toward Biden. Um, but we're talking really small numbers of people here. Like this is just an unusual election in the way in which people have been sorted and kind of stuck, <laughs> I mean, in their position um, well before election day. Then I guess just to, to, to drill down on that a little bit, I think, I think you're totally right in that people are so sorted in their camps that it's only I, you know, you couldn't hear because I was on mute, but I was laughing out loud when you said five people are making up their <laughs> minds. But in states like Wisconsin and in some of these other twin swing states in 2016, we saw them decided by margins that weren't that much bigger than five people. It was only yeah, a couple right. of percentage points. <laughs> right. So even right. though there's only maybe a couple people who haven't sorted do you think that this sorting might still be enough to ch change the outcome of some of these swing states and then by extension the election yeah i mean you're right because wisconsin was less than twenty two thousand votes michigan it was around eleven thousand, right and it, uh, it I, i'm trying to think of like what what might happen that would have a uh, a sizable impact on that group of people that hasn't happened yet. And um, 
I don't know. I don't want to speculate and think about like horrible additional events that could happen to this country. So um, it, I don't know. I mean, you're right. We're, we're so close now. I'm not really sure. And I, and I will say, you know, I wish that I could be out doing field work right now and say like the Northern part of Wisconsin, because I don't really have a great sense of what people are saying about the pandemic these days. I mean, my, my access to such conversations has been primarily through talk radio and listening to callers to local talk radio shows. Um, and it's, it's just, it's not the same as actually being with people in person. One of the things that is most prevalent and on people's minds right now are the polls and people admittedly and, you know, understandably don't trust them after 2016. What are you reading from these polls? It's a great question. I think in my mind, like in 2016, two things happened with the polls. One is you're absolutely right. It was a really close race and most of the national polls actually called it if you take into account the margin of error, right? But the other thing that happened was that the polling community and the political punditry was shocked that Trump won, right? So we could have looked at the polls and said, you know, okay, like the prognosticators are saying Clinton is gonna win, but it's not clear. And we all need to wait till the votes are counted. But that wasn't the case. It was people were saying, yeah, it's a close race. Clinton's going to, it's going to be a close race and Clinton's going to win, right? So people expected Hillary Clinton to win. And I think where the polls fell short was just an, an inability, partly, honestly, I think because of the method of understanding how it might be the case that people would vote for Donald Trump, you know? And I think you, it's hard. There are many political observers who saw Donald Trump as such an unusual character on the political scene that they just, they couldn't comprehend that people would in the end vote for him, right? Or that the country as a whole would vote for a character like Donald Trump. And it's not um, until you actually listen to people explain why they support him that it becomes more clear why it's a possibility right and polls i mean polls are an amazing device like they are extraordinarily powerful at telling us what a popular population of people prefers based on this magic of sampling, right? Like you can pull a thousand people and make an estimate about what the country as a whole is gonna vote uh, in a presidential election. It's amazing. What they're not so good at is telling us why people are um, preferring the, the candidate or the policy that they prefer. And and my my take on public opinion is like, there's nothing better for understanding that kind of thing than just listening to people, like listening to them, especially like in their own communities, like in their, in their own territory, not in a phone call with a stranger. And that's just something that polls, especially when they're so focused on the horse race, they're just not designed to pick up on. Speaking of 
kind of the polls and uh, the places where the polls are really, really close, the swing states, as we've kind of touched on a little bit before, it really does seem like this race is only going to come down to maybe a couple of really, really close states that were previously contested or swung abnormally in 2016. And we've already kind of talked a little bit about this on how the pandemic and the Trump administration's pandemic response may be one of the factors that might push these undecided voters in these states one way or the other. But what other things are you looking for in trying to determine how these swing states might fall one way or another? I know that a lot of figures in the national media have been pushing fracking as one thing that might uh, push Pennsylvania into one camp or the other. Uh, But what are you looking at or what other issues are you following in terms of what might cast the die for these states? I think the timing of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings is really important. The Supreme Court nomination procedure to be front and center right now, this close to the election is really important because many people who are leaning toward President Trump um, will explain their vote as, I'm not voting for President Trump, I'm voting for the next Supreme Court seat or I'm voting for my second amendment rights, right? Like they're, they're saying, I, yeah, he, the way he behaves may not be my preference for a president, but I'm not voting for Biden. I'm voting for someone whom I know is gonna nominate a conservative to the Supreme Court. And um, likewise for Democrats, for people who maybe have not been so motivated, to vote, uh, being reminded that who is president of the United States matters a lot for a seat on the Supreme Court might be mobilizing enough to get them to to show up at the polls or to vote early, vote absentee. And so I think that's um, pretty important. Yeah, I would say, um, yeah, that's probably more mobilizing than, than fracking or any other issue that I can come up with, yeah. Now, we're recording this exactly three weeks before Election Day, but I kind of want to know what you think is going, or, you know, maybe not necessarily what you think is going to happen in three weeks and one day, but what are some possible scenarios you see playing out? And, you know, this this is not me asking who you think is going to win the election, but more so the how you kind of expect the night to play out in regards to states reporting and, you know, us starting to see this trickle of information from states counting their ballots and their absentee ballots. Because I feel, this is just me, but I feel like a couple ways that this could happen is we could wake up on Wednesday to November 4th and Biden has handily won the presidency. Or, you know, we could wake up on Wednesday, November 4th, and the president has barely eked out re-election. But what, what are you expecting to see in regards to reporting from states on election night and afterwards? Well, that's a great question. It's great you guys are thinking about this because I think back to civic engagement, I think it's really important for all of us to consider what the day after the election is going to be like and how we're going to behave. <laughs> I mean, according to the polls today, 
it looks like it looks like we will know at the end of election night that Biden has won. That's my guess. But it is not outside the realm of the possible that we don't know that it's a close race. And knowing President Trump, and I mean, he is quite the performer. And I would not, I would guess that if it's close, he will declare victory. And then we will have a bit of a mess in which there are still votes being counted. So for example, if I have this right, Minnesota just declared yesterday that they're going to um, count any uh, absentee ballot received uh, through the ninth, I think. And Minnesota, I mean, Minnesota could be a close race. I'm not sure it's gonna be the deciding state, but um, there are examples like that where it's technically not going to be possible to finalize the count until a week after the election. And that will mean this week in which the candidates and their campaigns are kind of managing expectations. And if, um, if President Trump declares that he's a winner and then votes trickle in and then there's a different outcome, the, the level of skepticism about the process in the country right now is such that I really worry about the public response. And in part, I worry because we just had a militia planning to kidnap a governor of a swing state, right? So people are literally taking up arms to bring about the decisions that they want to see as opposed to waiting for a legitimate process to run its course. So I don't mean to be alarmist. I guess I am being alarmist. I'm, I, I'm, I am worried about how we are going to respond as a public to this. And I think honestly, I mean, bless your hearts for doing a podcast because I think a huge burden is on the media through this election to not call the election early despite the the overwhelming pressure to have the news, right? To declare winners. Um, I think the journalists have just a, a huge task in front of them over the next four weeks. One other question that I just kind of want to put on the docket about journalists is, you know, you describe this as a, as a big job and a big test for journalists. Um, but I want to ask, is it one do you think journalists are up for? Like just given the 24 hour news environment, the, the pressure to get the story first. So you get the most clicks or the most eyes on it. And just the general, you know, profit motive of American news, which then kind of drives people towards reporting on things that are instantly grabbing or outrageous. How much faith do you have that journalists are going to be able to cover this election in a way that's going to prevent, you know, this kind of division, outrage, or even violence that might come if it's not done the right way? Ah, uh, Sam. <laughs> I think it raises the, the issue of, like, the institutions versus the journalists, because my sense, I mean, I... I have the privilege of talking to a wide range of journalists, like domestically and internationally, you know, and my sense is 
almost every single one of them, you can just tell how much they care about the world and that they do the work they do because um, they believe in the role of the media, right? And that people, um, that there's something important about reporting on public affairs so that people can know what's going on in their world. But they're, almost all of them are existing in institutions or working for institutions that have to make money and increasingly having a hard time doing so. And you're right that what our democracy needs is good civil information and what the media industry is set up to provide is not always that. It's, you know, it's uh, information that's gonna attract attention and you don't attract a whole lot of attention by saying, you know what folks, we don't have an answer for you yet. Just hold on tight another six or seven days. We'll be right there with you. Um, yeah. Let's end on a couple of hopeful notes. Um, right on. Yeah, I'm all about it. Yeah, let's let's <laughs> let's turn this let's turn this mood around. What can we do to ensure a healthy civic democracy in the coming months and even weeks and years? Like, what can we do yeah. as individuals or as students or as Americans to just keep moving democracy forward, no matter how we feel about who wins this next election? Uh, because, of course, there's going to be a lot of very upset people, people, no matter who wins. So yeah. just maybe what are some of the things that we can do to just really make this country better for everybody? Great question. I would say look in your own backyard, in your own spheres of influence, whether we're talking about the situation, we deal with the aftermath of it or racial justice. Um, I believe that each of us, it's our obligation to do what we can in our existing realms of life. It's often, we often get distracted by um, the news environment and think that all of the focus is like around the presidency, right? And that it's all the action is taking place in DC. Well, actually all the action is right around you. So concretely what I mean is make sure you vote Make sure that you encourage other people in your life to vote and share with them information that you have. So for example, students, UW students, if you've already registered, if you've already voted, reach out to five friends and say, hey, are you planning on voting? And do you need to know, like, what do you need to know? What do you need help with? And let me direct you to vote.wist.edu. And also to just reinforce whether it's like your family back home, other students, people maybe that you work with, like this is still a legitimate process. Um, believe in the process of uh, electing your president and other public officials because once that evaporates, we know we actually no longer have a democracy. So we better figure out how to do this and we better participate in it. Another thing I would say is in the days after the election even and before it's decided, do what you can to, to make sure people treat each other well. It's going to be hard because roughly half of us are going to lose and there's going to be a lot of very sore feelings and beyond sore, right? Whatever it is, whether it's um, you figuring out how to respect people in your own sphere who don't feel politically like you do, 
Uh, I mean, that's huge. If we all can figure that out, then we would be fine. Um, and then with respect to racial justice, uh, we've had you know centuries of hurt that we are maybe now addressing if we can like make the most of this moment. But the only way we're gonna address it is for each of us to think in our own lives, like what am I doing to promote racial justice? What is it in my own particular life that needs to change in order to get this right? That, that may seem daunting, like to put it all on each of us individually, but I think there's a ton of hope in that. The solutions, the issue is not that the solutions are elusive and out there. The, the issue is that the solutions are right in each of us and we just need to step up and, and do the work. Absolutely, that is amazing advice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you again on the pod. Uh, it's a real, real treat for me. So thank you for inviting me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.